May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. It is only in the Gospel of St. Luke that we get the birth story. He's the only one who gives it to us. In Matthew's Gospel, one of the four Gospels, we get a prediction about Jesus' birth. We get stories of angels visiting Jesus' parents and making a prediction. We get magi who come perhaps a couple years after the birth of Jesus to bring gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Matthew even tells us a story that Jesus' father Joseph had to whisk the family away into Egypt as refugees to flee Herod as he was murdering young children. Only St. Luke Luke gives us the birth story. It's the story that Linus recites in Charlie Brown's Christmas story. You know, right? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And then he says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. We know the birth story only because of Luke. But there's a lot we know only because of St. Luke. He's the only one who tells us the story of the Good Samaritan. He's the only one who tells us that when ten lepers were cleansed and only one returned to give thanks, that that one leper was a Samaritan. Only Luke gives us 18 parables that we find only in his gospel, including parables like the parable of the lost lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. Without St. Luke's gospel, much of the core of Christian teaching would be lost or at least fogged. Luke is a physician. He was a physician in the ancient world. He was a learned man. Trust me, I've had to translate his Greek. It is very complicated. He has a a massive vocabulary. And he uses phrases and and syntax that are unlike anywhere else in the New Testament. Very sophisticated in his writing style. He's also in touch with the zeitgeist of the ancient world. Things that he says that, that sometimes were challenged and later realized that what happened wasn't that it was a technical difference. It was that, that Luke had his, his finger on the pulse of the culture more than even on the, the exact wording. He was a fantastic writer, a master historian. And, um, and we can only assume, I think rightly, that he must have been a very important person, a, mar- a, a man of, of great uh, importance and weight in his world. I thought about how honor and social standing and prestige have always been sought by people. They always have. I, I was guessing, like, even in, like, caveman times, you know, there was, there was a caveman who had the biggest club and the biggest cave and the, the most beautiful long black hair that came off of his back. And um, that was funny, I thought. And, and, uh, and there were people, you know, there was other cavemen that would look at him, and they sort of wanted what he had. They wanted his his bigger club and his bigger dwelling and his long flowing locks on his back. You know, the people probably said, oh, you know, there goes Bob. He's got that beautiful back hair and that big have, you know. Like, but more than even the stuff that he had, it would have been power. There would have been honor. There would have been a sense of, of, of popularity and social standing. He would have kind of stood out from the other people. Fast forward a long time. The first century, the, the time of the birth of Jesus... Um, the pursuit of honor was considered a virtue. The pursuit of prestige, of social standing, of, of climbing a social ladder was viewed as a, as, a, as a major good. Philatima in Greek is the word for the love of honor. And it's more than just honor. It was, it was you know, a whole, a whole ball of wax that goes with that. It's, it's prestige and, and it's power. No one sought after humility. 
Nobody wanted to be humble. Everybody wanted to be great. There was no, there was no compatible philatema for humility. Everyone wanted to go up. Everyone wanted to be well thought of in the eyes of everyone else. No one wanted to be a servant. No one wanted to be lowly. But the world has changed. In our world, in our time, 2,000 years later from Jesus, um, we do not necessarily prize the same sorts of things. We eschew those who pursue power and prestige. We see it as arrogant and boastful and narcissistic. We rather esteem those who like humility, who embrace humility in a humble station, those who like modesty, we see as virtuous. The one who seeks their own importance, we find that as being vicious. But I have a question to you. Why? Why do we see things this way? And more importantly, when did we change? When did it happen that all of a sudden the world stopped you know, pursuing honor and prestige and instead began to pursue humility and modesty and meekness. I think, to answer that question, it could rightly be assumed that when it happened, the second question was when a physician from the Roman world took a pen and began to write a book. He dedicated this book, this little book, the Gospel of St. Luke in in the New Testament, to an important man whose name was Theophilus. He writes it to Theophilus and gives it to him as a gift. And when he does, he gets this book, the title he writes, The Gospel of Jesus Christ. He finishes it around the middle of the first century, and he he delivers it to the world to be read. And you know the story. I mean, Linus told you the story in Charlie Brown. You know what it is. And most of you love the story. You're here tonight because you embrace that story. And here it is. A young couple living in Israel are forced to leave their homes and travel to a distant city because a faraway despot has deemed that it's necessary for them to be registered. They have no power. Caesar has all the power. The young couple arrives in the home of their ancestry, and there's no place for them. And so the young man and the young woman find their way into a cattle stall. She goes into labor, gives birth. And they have their baby in this cattle stall. I thought about how we romanticize Mary's birth. Jesus' birth with Mary. How we romanticize her labor. Let me say it that way. How we romanticize Mary's labor. Almost like she was perhaps sitting cross-legged sipping tea whilst Jesus was busy being born. You know, that that she's not really involved in it. It was just a, a pleasant little evening. I'm guessing that the birth of Jesus was like the birth of every other child. That it was loud. And it was violent, and it was bloody and dangerous. And it was frightening. And yet here he is, he's born, and placed in this most humble of settings, a feeding trough. I want you to imagine, you live in the first century, and you're reading this story, and you are somebody who pursues honor and prestige and power. And you say to this person who gives you this book, this is nonsense. Your God was born in a barn? This is really what you're going with? This is the story you're going to give me. Not the way it's supposed to be. When kings are born, you know what happens. The best towels, a team of surgeons and nurses, 
The, the blankets, everybody readies. And when the baby's born, there's, it, it, it's an emergency situation. And we take care of that baby and we make sure he's fine. And then we wrap him tightly in the best cotton blankets and, and he's ready. And then they bring him to the parents. It doesn't have to be a king. If you all have babies, this is the way we do it. This is the way people have always done it. And she gave birth to her son. And she wrapped him in bands of cloth. And she laid him in a cattle feeder. The most humbling, humiliating part of that is she did it herself. She, Mary, gives birth. She wraps her baby. She places him there. All alone. Because there's no room for them. How humiliating. Again, imagine people who are reading this for the first time. You know the story. You've got 2,000 years of baggage. You've already worked it out. But they didn't. They had to look at this and say, this is absurd. This is ridiculous. This is your sales pitch. This is the way you're going to sell your religion to the world. This will never work. It's never going to fly. Oh, wait, wait. We have witnesses. Here's Luke. And in that same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And I think Theophilus and the Greeks and the Romans had to go, what? These are your witnesses. Shepherds. Even the Jews think shepherds are the most disgusting people on earth. They won't let them testify in court. These are your witnesses? People whose, whose credibility nobody receives? And the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. We love this story. We love the austerity, the simplicity, the humility. But I want you to know something. We know it because this story revolutionized the world. It changed every part of the world. This story set the world on its head. That Jesus, the, the one who would be grow up in Nazareth, the way that he was born, the way he lived his life, and ultimately the most humiliation, that he died on a Roman cross. That humility is not something to be issued. It is something to be valued. Humility is beautiful. I don't know if you know this, but historians at Macquarie University in Australia, a secular university, not a Christian university, um, they did a study. And they actually asked these same questions. Why do we value humility over arrogance? And when did we start doing this? Has this always been the case? The answer of the question that secular historians of Macquarie University in Australia came up with was with the birth, life, death of Jesus of Nazareth. That it totally changed our value system in the world. And it's what's more, it's not just that we value the aesthetic of humility, that it somehow comes off to us as more beautiful, but actually humility makes the world work in a much better way. Consider science. If you're into science, you cannot do science without humility. You cannot come up with an idea and say, you know, I could be wrong about this. I know, that's a crazy thought, right? I could be wrong. Here's my idea. I'm going to create a, a test to test my idea. I'm going to duplicate the test. And then I'm going to give it to somebody else and say, what do you think? 
Without humility, there is no science. There's no path forward for it. The birth of Jesus offers humility at a place where we would least expect it. And if you hear anything else tonight, and if if you miss a lot of stuff, don't miss this. If Luke was making up this story, he would not have made it up like this. Here's a test that historians have. What's the likelihood that you would tell a story in this way? Zero. Unless, unless it's true. See, the prophets of Israel told us that God himself was coming. That he had this rescue plan to save the world. And this God, whose name was so holy people should not utter it, whose might was so great he could part the sea, whose presence was so massive that he could be everywhere at the same time, he was coming himself. How will we know when he arrives? Will there be smoke and fire? Will there be lightning coming down from the sky? Will there be chariots and horses? Or will there just be a little feeding trough with a young couple, penniless, a long way away from home, whom nobody would suspect brought the King of Glory into the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.